I'm sure had I known through the years that this day was coming, I would have been more circumspect in some of the things that went on. But thus far, we have survived. I wish that Carol McLean's father, R.B., was here, because I owe R.B. several things through the years that we lived together. The classic of classics was the day that R.B., after having driven to Pecos, Texas, on a Monday night after teaching all day and taught about three hours down there and then drove back, got back to Lubbock about quarter four in the morning and just slept in his car till time to teach again. The next day, in the middle of Isaiah, was making a point and was awakened finally by the laughter of the class who had allowed him for several minutes to, to sleep. The only difference between R.B. and me is that I stayed awake and the class was bored to sleep. So that. John chapter 1 is the ongoing picture of our Lord Jesus. We began in the summer of the year about 26 A.D. when Jesus, out of the quietness, the obscurity of 30 years of undescribed growth in his home in Nazareth, came to be baptized of John and Jordan. Immediately thereafter, he was tested by Satan, but was triumphant. After that, he would be identified by John to John's disciples as the one lamb after hundreds of thousands of sacrifices who would do what all of them could not do, take away the sin of the world. And then he would be spoken of by Andrew to his brother Peter and by Philip unto Nathaniel, whom we would later know as Bartholomew. And chapter 1 concluded with Jesus' commendation of Nathaniel as an Israelite with no guile. And Nathaniel has acknowledged Jesus as the King of Israel and the Son of God. We were reminded this week of the death of the lady who wanted to be Queen of England because of circumstances beyond her control. Her husband, King Edward, would abdicate the throne for the love of his woman. She was described as, among other things, and I'm sure she had many good qualities, but as one who loved wealth, money, and wanted to be queen, was denied that opportunity. Nathaniel acknowledged Jesus as the king of kings, as alone, divine, of all men. Jesus' response is, Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than this. And the greater things, I think, inherit in the fact that this king, this son of God, in a way that beggars human understanding, for without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, as Paul writes. And so Jesus said to Nathaniel, what would you say if you saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man? Jesus calls attention to it. It's identification with us. So when we study about Jesus, walk with him this afternoon for a little while. Remember, he's just as real as I am, only genuinely real. He's whole, and I'm flawed and failed. But he's real, flesh. He did not seem to appear. We shall see him weary and hungry and thirsty, talking with the woman that chances to come thereby. One final thought as we look now toward chapter 2. At the fifth scene in that first year of the life of Jesus, the statement of the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man 
has only one parallel in Scripture. That takes us back to the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis. When Jacob, of whom we had some things to say, fleeing from his brother Esau, rests his head upon a stone, and that night has a vision of heaven opened, a ladder, and angels, angelos, messengers, coming from God and going to God. One of the sublime truths of the Bible is that God has spoken to us. Have you ever felt that distance with someone? You can't communicate. You reach out for them. They will not reach out to you. You are rebuffed as you reach out. That terrible hiatus. The prophet is God's mouth who comes to make known to us his heart, his mind, his will, his words of eternal life. The prophet is God's angel, his messenger to us. But because of my sins, I'm unfit for the presence of a perfect God who requires perfection about him, whose eyes are too good to look upon sin, as the prophet said. And so I must have a priest who will go into his presence there to offer gifts, showing my gratitude to the one who made me, and sacrifices for sins to show them that I truly am sorry for my failures, and I want to do better. And that's what the Bible is all about. God's message to us through his prophet and his willingness to receive us as one represents us in his presence, a priest. Now, Jesus, early in his ministry, in the first week of his service, after he comes out of his, his days of trial in the wilderness, says to Nathaniel, I'm the latter. I've come from God with the message of God for you. I will go back to God to appear in the presence of your God in your behalf. I am the ladder, the angels of God ascending and descending, not upon Jacob's ladder, but upon the Son of Man. And Nathaniel must have wondered about that and likely invited Jesus to be a guest in his home, a man in whom there was no guile, who lived in Cana, for it was to Cana that Jesus next travels. Let's travel with him. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. And the third day, we concluded that Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel on the first Sunday of his ministry. If we are correct in following the rabbinic requirement that maidens marry on Wednesday. So the third day after the preceding events would bring us to Wednesday of that week after the events at the close of chapter 1. The third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted or lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three <coughs> firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. They fill them up to the brim. Sound like John's words. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And the governor of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. And knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, 
then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed him. Cana was about nine miles from Nashville, the town that Jesus had grown up in. Jesus has gone down to the Jordan River, been baptized of John, spent a month and a half out in the wilderness, has come back into the region of the Jordan River where John is to be pointed out as the Lamb of God, has gone with the disciples into a home and has abode there, probably in the city of Nazareth, his home. Now he goes to Cana and may well have been a guest in Nathaniel's home, this disciple that he has acknowledged at the close of chapter 1. A wedding takes place and Jesus is invited. And we're told that his mother and his disciples were there. The absence of reference to Joseph has led to the conjecture that Joseph has died. There will be no other reference to Joseph in all the Bible. And at the close of Jesus' ministry as he gives his life on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus, seeing John, his beloved friend, standing there next to his mother, he'll say, Behold your mother. And John tells us in his own words that he took her unto his home, cared for Jesus' mother. It is impossible for any of us to express what our mother means to us. And that is the more difficult. As circumstances change in your life and you come to a point where, as in the case of my mother with Alzheimer's disease for 10 years, who knows none of us now, the past two or three years, two weeks ago had her left leg amputated because of circulation problems. And as I sat there in the room and they had placed her up in a chair, she from that fetal curve and her eyes closed and I held her hands and began to talk about it. Mom, how you used to take me downtown. We'd ride the streetcar and we'd get off 4th Main. You'd go and blast us. You'd drag me all over that store. And I'd talk about that. How we waited for the stop. I had to go to Woolworths because she had to get a spool of thread. And we'd get a hot dog. And I talked about the relish that she put on her own. And then we'd have to go in corn. Didn't mind anything there. It was too expensive. On up to Fifers and had to go in McClellan's. We had to make all the dime stores because she'd missed something. And after we saw it, it took me about 30 minutes just to make that trip and get on the streetcar and go back home. None of that registered. And I talked about when I waked up from surgery the last time I was in the hospital about 30, 35 years. She was sitting. I said, I'm sitting by your bed. She said, mine. When I was sick, well, I used to want you to do two things. I want you to make milk toast. I said, remember how you used to make milk toast? And we talked about how she'd make warm milk toast. And I said, the other thing, I want you to sing to me. I said, you remember the song you used to sing? And I sang for 30 minutes hymns that she used to sing. Two or three nurses were in the doorway while we was having church. None of that ministry. And as I left, I had this feeling, she lives in Little Rock, that I could well be seeing her for the last time in the garden. Mom, take care of yourself. You're only God. She said, I will try. I want to believe that, that familiar interchange between us that for just that moment, she was speaking. Her mother was gone. Jesus' mother meant that much and more to him. She's present at the wedding, and the events which take place are distinctive and surprising and instructive for her and for us. Weddings in their day and time were very significant and quite different in their customs than ours. Last evening, I spent the evening doing what daddies do when they have older daughters about to get married, buying her a, a dinner, going out walking in Maxi Park, and sort of reversing probably the last daddy-daughter talk that we'll have prior to her changing her part of her name. 
and then talking with her and her fiancé in regard to their plans one month from today. But in the time of our Lord, the betrothal would take place upwards to a year. could not be more than one year in advance of the wedding. It was sealed by the intended bridegroom, either personally or by deputy, in the presence of two witnesses, giving her even either a token of money or a written statement of his intentions for them to marry, of course, with their consent. But that ordinarily was attended with some celebration by the family and a fervent prayer for God's care in their life during the time of their betrothal. And now, in every way except living together, they are considered married. It will be considered adultery if either one is faithless, as it was supposed Mary to have been when she was with child by the power of God. A divorce would be required if they broke the engagement. It's not just whether or not he gets his ring back, as it were. A divorce, a formal divorce decree had to be signed if that betrothal was broken. And Joseph was minded to divorce her. That's the word. Private. Because he didn't want to hurt. Broke his heart. Didn't want to hurt till he learned better from the angel. Then, when finally the time would arrive, the friends of the bridegroom would go to the bride's house. Payment would be made to her parents of a dowry. She would be attired in her beautiful wedding gown with her long flowing hair and her veil. And usually with tortures and torches and much merriment and joy and gladness and singing, she would be conveyed by the friends of the bridegroom to the place where the wedding would take place. She would be accompanied by all of her companions. So you have a large wedding party moving through the town, and it's a very festive occasion. And then when they arrive, why, actually, according to rabbinic law, when she walked into the dining hall, the marriage hall, she, by walking in where her bridegroom was, was considered husband and wife even before they cohabited in the marriage chamber. Well, at that time, it was not unusual at all for the friends of the bridegroom in, in less than meaningful chatter and sometimes coarse and crude in their remarks to entertain the crowd in much the same unhappy way that people make senseless comments about what happens when you get caught and married and all that unfortunate abuse of God's marvelous gift. However, such was not the case in Galilee. The country people, with more quiet respect for the family and marriage, spared themselves of that excessive crudeness, which is somewhat interesting as we think of the setting of this, this marriage in Canaan. And then after a feast that might last for quite a period of time and various good wishes and prayers, well, then the friends of the bride and uh, groom would transport them, convey them to the marriage chamber and the marriage bed, and, and that was a senseless act of embarrassment oftentimes to the bride, but those were some of the customs involved in the marriage. Jesus is there. Jesus is a real person. People who are meaningful to our two families. It will not be a large church wedding when our daughter Mary's Price Hale, son of Bill Hale, who's served as one of the shepherds there in the Central Church in Amarillo. But it won't be a large wedding. But those who are there will be those who are particularly close to Price, 
and to Carla and to our families. Which is to say that Jesus is the kind of a person who enjoyed being with people. He enjoyed weddings. Not the empty revelry, but the good times. The deep feelings and and the precious memories and, and the fact that we're sharing in something that was ordained of God as the foundation for human experience in the very dawn of Adam's creation. So all of that, you see, lies behind just John's reference. There was a wedding at Cana, and guess who was there? Jesus and his mother and his disciples. Now, another interesting thing that occurs is they run out of wine. In studying the subject of wine, I'm persuaded, though the Bible speaks of intoxicating wine, that the word wine in its generic sense has reference to the, the new wine, the sweet wine, the unfermented wine, which was a precious drink in the first century. So I'm not persuaded at all that this is alcoholic fermented wine. That would be a study within itself. I'll just make that statement passing it. When we're studying the other subject, we'll, we'll pursue that further. In any event, there are six large water pots. And we're not sure because there were three different measures called a firkin. There was a local measure, there was a Palestinian measure, and there was a Jerusalem measure. But we're talking in terms of at least 20 gallons in each of these stone water pots. Being up country in Thailand in the dry area, and it, they had had a very painful drought. We were in the very poor villages. And with a new uh, Azizu pickup truck that was in good shape, we bogged down in just powdery sand. It, it went down to the chassis. And three of us had to get out and push as we rocked. It was just that dry. And in those areas, you'd see these huge stones. Every drop of water is exceedingly precious. So at this wedding, uh, for various uses and for cleaning the vessels, so they had these six water pots. Word comes. They're out of wine, and Mary presumes as the mother to give instructions to Jesus. She'd done that from childhood. Out of all the ladies in the world, God the Father found in the maiden of Galilee the precious qualities of character to be the mother of his child. And Jesus had, had gone down to Nazareth and been subject to her. Luke tells us chapter 2. And he was obedient. And he always showed respect. But now as Mary says, Jesus, take care of this. Jesus indicates that things have changed. That now human relationship is secondary to relationship to God. Now his words are not rude. And they are not crude. His term, woman, was uttered with the same deep love and respect and esteem when I said mom. But Jesus' words were not misunderstood by Mary. Woman, what have I to do with thee? You remember the last words to his mother we heard him say? I must be about my father's. There is work for me to do that you know not of. And Mary had kept all these sayings in her heart. The last 18 years she'd been wondering about what he said in the temple. So on this occasion, what is happening is Jesus is saying, Mom, there's work to do. Things have changed. I love and respect you. What matters now is not my brother or my sister or my mother doing the will Remember that statement in Matthew chapter 12, the last paragraph, when they were waiting outside to talk with him. So she just turned to serve and says, whatever he says. And they fill up the water pots to the brim. And, and when they draw them out, why? The wine is good. 
And just because it's it's spiked with a high alcoholic content doesn't necessarily make any drink good today. So that's not to argue that that's the merit that would define this as alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And so the man says, ordinarily, we give the good wine first. Later after men have well drunk, that which is not as good. I'm not persuaded that he's speaking of when they are inebriated or when they are drunken or when they are full. How would they know whether it was good or bad or indifferent if they're out of their senses? But he said, that's not the case. You have saved the good wine until now. Well, they didn't know where the wine came from. Servants knew. Servants had poured water in. John says this was the first distinctive act for which there was no human explanation. In the Bible, there are three words that are used in reference to these mighty deeds. One is miracles. One is wonder. One is science. And almost invariably, you'll find that trilogy of, of statements. You remember Peter on the day of Pentecost when he said, Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him, Acts 2, 22 and following. The word miracle emphasizes the divine power. It can't be done, but it is. Man can't do this, but this man did it. So it emphasizes the divine power without which the miracle could not occur. Now, we use the term loosely, but that's the biblical sense. The word wonder describes my amazement. When I see what what otherwise, I've never seen it, and it can't be, but it is. And I wonder, so it's the reaction which that divine power has occasioned. And the sign means what it signifies. What does this mean? What does it prove? And so when Jesus did these signs, even as Nicodemus would say in chapter 3, we know, now here's what this signifies. You're a teacher come from God. No man can do the things which you've done. Unless God be with This is the beginning of miracles there in Cain. Okay, are we stopping? Okay. At this portion of our study, we have crossed into probably the latter half of the first year of his ministry. We assume that he was baptized in the summer of 26, and the events that we've been studying took place late in the summer and in the fall. But we're going to read now in chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, that the Jews' Passover was at hand. Passover feast occurred in the middle of the first month, 14th day of the first month of the year. Now, their first month corresponds to about April of our year. And that's the reason that when you get to October, our 10th month, you're having the day of repentance, the day of atonement, the most solemn day in the Jewish New Year, which fell in their seventh month, on the tenth day. But it would fall in our month of October. So when we think in terms of the events that we're about to read, verses 12 and following, we have passed the winter and come into the early spring, probably of A.D. 27, or the latter part of the first year of the ministry of Jesus. Verse 12, after this, after the wedding feast in Cana, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. They continued there not many days. Capernaum will become the home of Jesus during his major portion of his ministry. He grew up in Nazareth, but he will now make his home in Capernaum, beautiful city on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it is from this area that he will preach into the region all the way up to Tyre and Caesarea Philippi and over to Decapolis, east of the Sea of Galilee. 
Matthew and Mark will tell us, just rather abruptly, that when Jesus learned that John the Baptist was dead, he went to Galilee. Now, the reason we've spent so much time reading from the Gospel of John is that John is the only one who records these early events in his Judean ministry. But Matthew and Mark just follow him immediately to Galilee, and it is in his home base now, Capernaum, that he will travel hither and yon. But on this occasion, he's in Capernaum, doesn't stay very long. Verse 13 says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Went up, of course, 70 miles south, but ascended 1,300 feet above sea level, so you always topographically are accurate with every biblical reference. You always go up to Jerusalem down any other place. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now let's pause there and then we'll complete this record in a moment. Josephus tells us that upward to three million pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem. Now try to imagine what that means. All over the Mediterranean world. The Jews from the dispersion, there was a large dispersion of the Jews still in Babylon that remained there after the Babylonian captivity from the 6th century before. And that was the home of orthodox, stringent Judaism. The Western dispersion through Asia Minor into Greece and over to Rome There were Jews everywhere, several million Jews outside of Jerusalem. Now, the law required that every male go up to Jerusalem three times a year. They did not always do so, but several million did. In our day and time, you'd think in terms of trying to get a flight back to Jerusalem. I can remember on one occasion going over somewhere in Oklahoma, and I saw a hedge hop from Dallas to Paris, and they picked me up and took me up to wherever that was, and and I came back to Paris and got to DFW and couldn't get back to Lubbock that night because it was the end of spring break and all of Texas Tech folks had random flights. I went to DFW just a seething turmoil. And I'd already called my son who lives in Fort Worth. About a week later, Evelyn said, Ted, what in the world is this on your new white shirt? We know questions like that to strike terror in the, in the minds of a, of a man, even when he's trying to behave himself, because you're not quite sure how to answer I said, well, what does it look like? You know, I punted. I was treading water. She said, it looks like brown shoe polish. I said, that's probably what it is. She said, what in the world on your brown shoe polish? I said, well, what do you think you'd get on a white shirt when you're trying to use your shoe for a pillow on the big red bus riding all night from Fort Worth to Lubbock to get in at 7 o'clock to start teaching all day in the school of preaching? So a month before the Passover feast, readiness began to be undertaken all over the world. People were going to be traveling. And they would begin to sort the animals out of. They were going to try to bring an animal for the Passover feast and for their various peace and other offerings there. They would have to to have them inspected to be sure that they were without blemish so that when they got there, they would be accepted. And then they didn't have the assurance that such would be the case. They would have to have the correct half-shekel coin To pay the temple tax, everyone had to pay that, with the exception of women and slaves. And it had to be paid 
with a coin that did not bear the image of Caesar or of Egypt or Syria or Tyre, some other local coin of that day. So up to within a month of the Passover time, in every province there would be money changers. But a month before the Passover, they would fold their tables. They would all retire to Jerusalem, the temple. And you need to do some reading on your own to see the grandeur and the size of Herod's temple. The temple enclosure with the court of the Gentiles was just a seething marketplace. My travels in and out of Asia briefly. A person is never the same to go into that type of situation. And, and the disorientation that's associated with culture shock because you can't find familiar signals. The, the sounds are different. The smells are different. And, and the humor is different. And the language, you don't understand. You can't even make change. And, you, and you'd like to make a telephone call. And you can't read the directory. And you, and you don't know what coin is necessary. And, and the operator comes on. And, you, and all of that's confusing. But I think of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, being much like an Asian marketplace with, with just business and the, and the Bible and, and animals and and having to change money. When you travel, you have to change money. And you never get back what you give. Jesus comes to the temple. And he sees the money changers who took advantage of people. Charged them exorbitant rates just like a loan shark. How would you like to get a loan from a pawn shop here in Lubbock? If you're a pawn shop operator, well, no apology in, is necessary if you don't charge too much interest. But that's what the money changers did. And then they had all of these animals around because invariably, when you had nurtured and cared for and examined that precious lamb that you wanted to give in the feast or to bring as a free will offering, and you'd gone to all the trouble and you had the inspector in your own province to inspect and to certify, and there were 14 different reasons why an animal could be judged unacceptable out in the provinces, the rabbi said. And then you've gone through all the trouble, so like traveling with children on an airplane, and you get to Jerusalem, and the inspector there in the temple says, Oh, you almost have a good animal, but a special price for you today. You buy right now. Special price for you. Which would be about four times what animals were. Can you imagine this building being used to take advantage of people? My Lord is there, and he makes a scourge of small cords, a small whip. And he starts just turning furniture over. Try to imagine going into huge supermarket here and starting to just stroll cash registers in all directions. And he drives them all, the neuter pronoun which suggests men and animals. What do you see in Jesus? I see something I admire. Not violence. Not a man out of control, insane, throwing a fit. He didn't have to do that. He could have blinked one eye and that would have evaporated the whole temple and everyone. My Lord never defended himself, never. The prophet had said eight centuries before, like a sheep, dumb, before his sheriff. Pilate marveled. Don't you hear all they're saying? Won't you answer anything? Couldn't understand. My Lord stuck up for people that were hurting, the helpless, the weak. And I think of that when I go to Asia. I was in the Philippines the week of the election. President Marcus did not ask the saints in Baguio if it was all right for him to schedule a snap election after we had planned a period of Bible studies for three years ahead. And all of the tensions and, and the real, the real quiet foreboding among the Filipinos who really believed there was going to be a bloodbath that week. And then 
the stories and the allegations and, and all of the extravagance that have been imputed to the Marcuses' abuse of the people and to see tragic poverty of the masses of the people, and it will never be any different in their lifetime. Never. My point is, my Jesus had a sense of right and wrong and a strength, which I, it always thrilled me finally when some bully got his come of us by someone who was bigger than he was. Our son Steve, that's a servant of the gospel, was reared being told that you don't start fights and you don't fight. And we went through that same period that you have gone through with your children where for two or three weeks, why about every fourth or fifth day, Steve would come in like he'd been drawn, dragged by in a pickup. Ask us, Steve, what's going on? Where have you been? What happened? Lawrence picks a fight. And finally, you know, when you run out of answers, you just make one. I said, Steve, the rule still goes. We don't fight. We don't pick fights. But one of these days, you may have to finish a fight. So he didn't saw me. About a week later, he looked like he'd been through a corn shell. I said, what happened? I think I finished the fight. And I felt good. Not because my boy was fighting, but I felt like there was a fellow who got what he needed. My Lord was cleaning house for his fault. And he was cutting through the sham and the pretense of those who, in the name of religion, had missed the real essence of being right in one's heart and spirit before God. Well, verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. And therefore he was risen from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They asked for a sign, and Jesus said, no sign. You see, this is what Satan has always asked. I will believe if you'll do it this way or that way. Make make the, the bread out of the stones and, and jump off and let the angels catch you and, and fall down and worship. And on this occasion they say, what, what authority do you have to, to come in and... Notice, they did not speak a word while he was doing it. They did not oppose him. They stayed out of his way. Then the leaders say, who are you to do this? What, what makes you think you can do this? And Jesus doesn't give them the sign that they're looking for. The Jews require sign. He gave them a sign that really was no sign. sign they wouldn't accept. He said, here's the proof that I am who I am. You're going to think you have destroyed me, but you're not going to win. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Now, later during his trial, this will be used against him. We heard this man say that, that he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. He spoke of the resurrection of his Now, can you imagine any man making this statement? Prove you're from God. Have you ever talked to somebody who thought he was God? It is such a distressing experience that the absolute insanity, the absurdity of it, cannot be appreciated. But I, I remember a man telling me he was good. Jesus said, here's my proof. I will die on the third day. My tomb will be empty. I was visiting with a young man in El Paso a few years ago with some men from Sunset. We were on a campaign. I had the profound feeling that he really felt he was something. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't like the feeling of just overweening pride 
being real suave in his, and he was an unbeliever. And I said, tell me about the empty tomb. Give me some explanation. Did he really live in the first century? Is this really 1972 or whenever it was we were in El Paso? 1972, since when? Well, he said, uh, let me tell you this. Uh, Roosevelt and Hoover are running for re-election, and one is the conservative and the other is the liberal. Which one is which? I said, I doubt it matters as far as it relates to our discussion. Oh, he said it matters. Because Roosevelt was the conservative in 32, and Hoover was the liberal. So a lot of things can change with the passing of time. And who knows but these fairy tales about Jesus. I said, friend, in 1945, on the evening of April the 12th, I sold extras of the Arkansas Gazette for 25 cents apiece. I remember because the going price of the daily paper, 350 of which I sold, was three cents. And we got a quarter because our president died. I said, do you think? That would have been any circumstance compared to three days later if he'd come back to life. You think we could have sold some extras then? This one that we profess our faith in is a historical person. And we can go to the very country in which he lived. We can read the Roman historian of the first century who didn't believe in him but acknowledged that he was put to death during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And somewhere in that line, somewhere in that land, there is a tomb that is still empty. Whether or not the ones they show us on our journeys there is the actual tomb or not. But one thing I know for sure, if that's not the empty tomb, and they have his corpse somewhere, unbelievers 19 centuries ago would have produced it. They didn't produce it because it couldn't. But they had his body under guard. So early in the first year of his ministry, Jesus says, you want to know who I am? Here's my proof. You will think you've won, but the kingdom of God will prevail. On the third day, I'll raise this temple again. He spake of the temple this month. And that gives meaning to what we study today and what we're doing in our life. Well, the last paragraph tells us that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So during that Passover with millions of people there, this bright young prophet who's speaking words like no one has ever spoken, who's doing deeds that no one has ever done, and the multitudes now are being drawn to him like filings toward a magnet. Jesus knows what's going on, reads the hearts. Well, in chapter 3, we have a significant event that takes place. Here is one of the power structure himself who comes to Jesus in secret. Do we need to take a break? What? What do we have scheduled? Okay. I hate to let them have the last word, but I would far rather us continue in the word of Jesus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily. In the Greek, we'd read, Amen, Amen. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master, literally the teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. He that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, they are wrought in God. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is one of the noble Pharisees. We generally think of the hypocrite, the heresy. He's a man of integrity, a man of character, a man who is seeking to obey the Lord. But he's a man among the ruling power of Jerusalem. Can he acknowledge the influence of this rude, rough-looking carpenter prophet from Galilee who is seeing things about the kingdom of God that, that say fringes and phylacteries and and power and prestige and, and titles and, and gaudy prayers in public places, that won't do it. Having the mark of Abraham in the circumcision of the flesh, that that won't do it. Maybe in the home of John in Jerusalem. Another conjecture from Jesus committing Mary to his care in Jerusalem at the crucifixion, we might assume. That. Maybe in the home of his best friend John. Jesus would be up on the roof in the guest chamber, and one night in the coolness of the early spring when the streets of Jerusalem are quiet in anticipation of the Passover, a man of importance moves quietly with great risk to his personal status because he knows in Jesus there's reality. There's something about it. Wherever he finds him, wherever the conversation takes place, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. You do things no man can do, unless God do you. Jesus' reply to Nicodemus is his reply to us and to all men. Jesus said, Nicodemus, God's kingdom is different. Even as in the first chapter of John, we're told that those who are born not of man, nor of blood, nor of the will of man. And that's the way Stephen and Mark and Carl and Jean and Sean we're born of Evelyn's womb, of man, with our blood from God in our children. Jesus said that's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the ending of dependence upon 
who I am physically having to do with this life. Of course you live in this world. Of course you have babies. Of course you pay taxes. Of course you eat and you grow old and die. The kingdom of God is God's Messiah being the ruler, the Lord, the sovereign, the helper, the lover, the savior in your heart and life. God enthroned in your life. That's not easy. You and I have had to make decisions which we had the profound conclusion after prayer and reflection and study that God really would feel it would better that we go this direction, whereas there were strong personal desires or feelings or fears that moved us in an opposite direction. And the question is, who is the king of my life? I remember when Klein and Abe particularly were calling to Wisconsin back in 69, inquiring and after that, entreating that we move, become a partner in the good work of training men such as these we fellowship with today. And that was very difficult because of the years that we'd spent in the mission area there and the investment of opportunity and so forth. But after various investigations and time of prayer and Evan and I spending numerous hours talking and praying and waiting and, and casting, as it were, fleeces out for things that we would interpret as God's answer, we decided to move to Lubbock, God willing, the next year. And a good friend, a co-worker for years in Wisconsin said, Ted, did you have difficulty deciding what the will of God was in your decision? I said, not really. After we went and pondered the possibility of multiplying laborers for the harvest, I said, I really concluded that that was the will of God. I said, I had much more difficulty agreeing to consent to what I believe he wants me to do. Because I, at that time, honestly did not want to leave where we were to move to love. When Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, who is the master, the teacher of Israel, in the Sanhedrin, a member of the council, a jurist, a teacher, a man of importance, Jesus said, Nicodemus, let me tell you one thing that matters. You've been born. And I'm not talking about going again into your mother's womb, even as religious teachers today misapply this discussion. Jesus said, except a man be born anew, the Greek word can mean also from above, which involves being born of water and of spirit, as Titus 3 verses 5 through 7 will re later refer to gospel obedience. When the Spirit of God has convicted us of Christ and of our need for Him, and our hearts have been led to obedience in the washing of regeneration, that baptism of the new birth. What has occurred is we have died to ourselves, and God has become king of our life. And only therein and thereby do we enter into the kingdom of God, do we let God come into our life. And there are people who say, I'll die and go to hell before I'll be baptized. They will. Not because they've not been baptized, because God is not finally and completely king in their life in that and other matters. It's interesting that as Jesus concludes this discussion, he uses an analogy. He explains to Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For then that profound, assuring statement of God's great love sufficient to give Christ that believers in him might be saved. But you see, verse 16 is the conclusion of that 14, 15 illustration. 
Are we saved by believing in Jesus? There is no other way than to cast our life in trust upon Jesus. Is that an obeying faith? What did it mean when they looked toward the serpent on the pole? God said in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, It shall come to pass when a man is bitten, if he look, he shall be saved. And it came to pass that whosoever was bitten, when he looked, he was healed. Did looking heal them? No. Did the snake? No. Did their obedience? No. Only God can heal from the fiery serpent. Only God can save us in Christ. When we believe and look, when we believe and are baptized and commit ourselves in obedience to him. So John 3.16 teaches us the nature of faith. For it's in the context of verses 14 and 15 and in the discussion of the new birth of water and spirit. To this man of impeccable credentials, he had everything except he was not in the kingdom, which is entered by being born again. At the conclusion of chapter 3, we have the reference of Jesus returning into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, here are John's closing words. What a tribute to the character of John the baptizer in his closing tribute to the one of whom he came to bear witness. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John sees the sun of his life tending toward the west. He knows that his work is fulfilled. The nation has been prepared. The Messiah has been identified. And now people are turning from John to Jesus. John said, that's the way it belongs. That's why I came. I have succeeded. And as he increases, I decrease. That is so foreign to my spirit on so many occasions. I pause and quiet tribute to the grace of God in the life of a man like John. He was a great man because he knew who the Messiah is. And that's what I'm trying to learn. Because it works that same spirit in a character that will cause the Messiah to say of John, none greater born of a woman than this man. But your privilege today is greater than John's in the kingdom. Now, chapter 4, may I just paraphrase from chapter 4 and from Luke chapter 4 as we conclude our study. This is almost like the last week of the school of preaching. In chapter 4, we read of Jesus traveling northward from Jerusalem through Samaria to Galilee. Ordinarily, Galileans would travel through Samaria to Jerusalem, but not Judea. Because, as John will tell us in the record, 
Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. This goes back to 2 Kings chapter 17, the fall of the northern kingdom, the terrible Assyrians coming in in the 8th century before Christ, leading the Israelites oil with fish hooks in their lips to Assyria because they failed to heed the call of Amos, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, Amos 4 verse 12. And with the bringing in of the Assyrians and the intermarriage and the worshiping of idols, then a hundred years later, with the remnant of the Jews coming back out of Babylon, the Samaritans pitched up and wanted to help them rebuild the holy city. And the Jews said, get lost. And the Samaritans tried to intimidate and threaten, ridicule to oppose the building of the temple. As you read the Edersheim and other such sources, you read the terrible extent to which the hatred, the utter despicable feelings of malice toward the Samaritans. The Jews would not even permit a proselyte from the Samaritan race to the Jewish religion. And the Samaritans had helped this along by building their own competitive temple on Mount Gerizim. The woman will refer to that in this discussion. And the brother of the Jewish high priest married the daughter of Samballot, one of the, the teasers, the sarcastic opponents of the remnant's return, and set up his own corrupt priesthood. So all of that lay in the background. Here's Jesus, and he travels through that despised country, and he's tired and hungry. He comes to a well that Jacob had dug many springs in the area. There are a number of roads that course through this area. John tells us it was near to the city of Sychar, just about a half a mile north. Interesting, there was another well closer to the city on the east side of the city. Is it accident that Jesus comes to this well, being tired, sends his disciples into the city to McDonald's to get a hamburger, to get something to eat. And while they're gone, here comes a Samaritan woman to this well, further removed from the city. Why didn't she go to the other way? Because of her nature of life, was she not well? Was it just easier? Was she working in the fields? Who knows except God? She is startled as Jesus speaks to her. I think the historical story you're familiar with. But what I see in this is the way you look at people. This is a woman that I probably would not visit if I got a personal work card on her here at South Plains because she'd been married five times. I don't know whether her husbands had died. Anybody's been married five times, they've all died, we raise questions about. If she'd been divorced, you know, that's worse. And now she's living with a man that's not her husband. And Jesus talks to her and reveals to this unwelcome, unwholesome drag of humanity, a mongrel, half-breed woman shacking up with a man. How else would we say it in our field? He reveals himself as the Messiah and reveals to her the nature of true worship. And so thrilling is this to her, that she leaves her water pot, her life suddenly has a higher priority, and she rushes back into the city Talk about the living. Jeremiah for Jehovah saying, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the effervescent spring fountain of living water, and then hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold the water. Jesus said, You've got a broken pot there. I'll give you a well of water from within, springing up to life everlasting. She goes, and the whole city comes out. The testimony of this woman. That says a whole lot more than I could say if I had the time, and I don't have the time. But as Jesus revealed the new birth to the lofty, important figure of the Sanhedrin, 
it reveals the nature of true worship to that poor but now blessed Samaritan woman. Fourth chapter of Luke tells us of Jesus returning to Galilee to the city of Nazareth, goes into the synagogue. His customers, he went to church every Saturday in the Jewish custom. And in the reading of the synagogue, ordinarily you would have a priest and a Levite and then five different Israelites reading from the law. Now, we've had five different Israelites today, but they were having other things to say than reading from the law. But the synagogue had a certain procedure, and after the reading, then one would be invited to expound upon the particular text of the day. It may well have been that Jesus was one of the Israelites in his hometown, assigned to read the 61st chapter of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. When he concludes, he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. But I know that you, you people who saw me grow up at Mary's knee in that home so poor that that they had to offer two turtle doves to, to cleanse my mother when I was born. And, and she patched my garments probably from the parables that he told. And, and I've worked for little daddy, and, and that's just the carpenter. Whence does it have such meaning and such understanding in letters? You'll probably say, physician, heal yourself. Come down off the cross. Command these stones to be made bread. See, Satan has always set the terms upon which to believe. May I remind you, Jews, Jesus said, that in the days of Elijah and Elisha, the grace of God was sent to a widow and to a leper, both of them non-Jews, Gentiles. God looks beneath the skin, beneath the credentials. He looks at the heart. And they take him out of the city and they're going to throw him down the hill and kill him. His hour wasn't come. We're waiting for Satan to kill Jesus on the cross. He'd still be there. He gave his life. You can't kill God. He gave it. They couldn't throw him down the hill. And he turned, and I wonder what that gaze was when he looked at them. And it opened like the Ritz. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him as we have sought this day to do, to them gave he the right to become the children of God and in Christ Jesus. And it's been a good day to be here. There's a passage in John that he talked about earlier that when Andrew and probably John was there and they went with Jesus and he said, you know, come and st- spend the day with me. Every time I read that, I think about what would it be like to spend a day with Jesus? I think we got a real close glimpse of it today. But, you know, one thing that uh, Ted has done, he's mentioned some of these that you'll probably, uh, he's no more different than the rest of us. The reason we can look at Ted up here and see Jesus is because Ted wasn't standing up here. Ted Kell died many years ago. And Jesus was reformed in Ted. And I don't know, Ted is one of the most spiritual men that I know, but he's probably just a toddler in his growth. And that's where it comes from, is studying these Gospels and being remade in him. I don't know Ted really that well. I think uh, some of these guys, I thought we were supposed to roast Ted. I didn't know we were supposed to build him up. (laughs) Yesterday I was in the park. And I was with my two little boys over in the playground, and I saw this man step out of this cowboy Cadillac over there with his daughter. And as soon as he stood up, I knew it was Ted Kell, just the way, you know, Ted Stan. He stands back there, and a stately fellow. So I've got to tell the story. I wasn't there, but I heard it from Ted's own mouth. One time he was on a meeting for seven days, and you know how sometimes you pack everything just to make sure you make it through the week. And his wife had packed some underwear for him. You know, around Valentine's Day, those time they sell at Hemphill Wells with the hearts on them. And uh, as it was, the last day of the meeting, sure enough, Ted wore those, and they had a baptism. And as if you've ever baptized someone, sometimes it gets water inside the waders. 
and I don't know if this is exactly the way the story went, but you know what happens when you get your pants wet? If you, have you seen Jim Hinton's shirt that he wore last Sunday night? It sort of signs like a neon sign. Well, there was Ted right there in front of everyone. Is that a true story? <laughs> so, you know, when you think of Ted and his stately being, think of that. But one thing, think of that story. But one thing, I, I really don't know Ted that well, but uh, a friend of mine in school, Malcolm, and his wife's name was Tammy. A friend came up to him and probably could have said the same thing about me. He says, you know, Malcolm, you know what I like about you? And he goes, what? You know, he's ready for some great praise. And he goes, Tammy. <laughs> and that's one of the greatest things I think about Ted is yesterday he was with his daughter. And before I ever came to Sunset, I had a privilege just to be with his daughter one afternoon. Some other friends that were with us knew him and knew the, knew her and knew the fellow that she was with. And even with it, I was really impressed with her. And I've seen a lot of my so-called heroes be knocked off their pedestal because of their children. But one of the great things about Ted is his family. And there's a passage, uh, well, there's 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. And no one knows you better than your family. I think uh, Ted's family speaks for what he really is. Thank you, Ted.